The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme. So we now know that the number of people who are unwell, who are sick and therefore off work has come down. But unemployment in the UK is actually going up. And UK wages are still red hot. Great if you're getting a pay bump, but actually not good news if you look at the Bank of England, because it could end up meaning that we have to see higher interest rates in Britain. Yeah, we've just seen the average two-year mortgage rate get to 6.66%. They keep on going up. The economic challenges for Sunak's government are really starting to look quite tricky. We'll discuss the issues and the data with Dan Hansen from Bloomberg Economics, the Manpower UK director, Chris Gray, and the Lord Mayor of the City of London, Nicholas Lyons. But if you're not talking about the jobs market at the water cooler, maybe Maybe, and if you're not talking about that BBC presenter and the young person in question saying the allegations are rubbish, maybe you're talking about Boris Johnson. Now, the former Prime Minister has failed to hand over his mobile phone to the COVID inquiry in time. That, I should say, is the one with the WhatsApp messages from the pandemic. How convenient. Yeah, Boris Johnson's office says that his team are still working with government security officials, insisting he wants to cooperate fully with the inquiry. But the 4pm deadline yesterday from Baroness Hallett, who is running the inquiry, well, that has truly passed. Do you know what? I used to work at The Telegraph, and so did he. And they used to say that he would file his columns always just at the last minute. He'd <laughs> written them in the taxi on the way there. So sounds about right. Yes, but remember that the government failed in court only last week to prevent the release of this information, uh, which uh, the government um, tried to put the case that it was unambiguously irrelevant material. So it's really difficult because Sunak has effectively gone to bat for Boris Johnson and now they're having this wrangle over whether the phone messages have actually you know been delivered to the cabinet office in time or not yeah it's a little bit awkward actually but if you dig into this apparently the messages are stored on Boris Johnson's old phone we've yes. all got a few phones um, yeah, under the bed or in the back cupboard haven't we from from years ago have we Ewan well, I have. You've not got have any old phones Caroline? yeah I've got old ones yeah, oh, definitely. Right. No, what do you do with yours get rid of them swap them Really? Mm, they are worth money, it's true. But, anyway, well, anyway Boris Johnson has got one. <laughs> and actually, if, if you cast your mind back to May 2021 and one of the scandals, I'm not going to ask you to guess which one because there were a few. Uh, there was a scandal over Boris Johnson's phone number, which turned out had been available on the internet for 15 years. Yes. So this was the old phone caught up in that scandal. So that's been switched off since 2021. And apparently they're having difficulty switching it back on again. Yeah, and it's all about whether the government security officials have had time to download the information. Anyway, all of that aside, the deadline was a strict deadline. It seems to have been and gone. 
Right, let's get back to some numbers that I'm more familiar with. It's today's employment data. So we find out from the Office for National Statistics today that average wages are rising faster than expected. They're 7.3% higher than a year ago when you exclude bonuses. That's not good news for the Bank of England and its fight against inflation, which is the highest in the G7. For more analysis, we're joined now by Dan Hansen, Senior UK Economist at Bloomberg Economics. Dan, what's your breakdown of this, let's say, mixed picture of data? Yeah, hey, Lizzie. So I think I think that's probably the right word to use, mixed, isn't it? it, it the, the play data is definitely what the Bank of England is going to be focused on. Um, and it's that and the inflation numbers that are going to guide it over the next few meetings. But I think if you look on the rather than the prices side of the labour market, if you look on the quantity side of the labour market, so the employment data and the unemployment data, there's actually some signs there that things are continuing to ease. Now, it's we're easing from a, a, a sort of situation of extreme tightness. So I think you sort of if you look at it in in absolute terms, the labour market is still tight and relative to history, but we're, we are in, in the phase now where things are starting to cool. Now, is that going to make a difference to what the Bank of England is going to do in the near term? As I say, no, because it's the wage data that they're focused on. But I think what it does is it does sort of open up this point about where the terminal uh, point for the for the Bank of England is. And if this sort of trend continues, at some point, they're going to have to place some weight on it because otherwise they're going to go too far because it's clear what they've what they've done to date is beginning to work it's just not working as quickly as i think they would like so they're, they're going to do a little bit more but i think this is going to sort of weigh on their decision going forward this idea that the labor market is beginning to turn so dan when we, when we talk about the labor market being hot and things being tight that means that there, there are a, a lot of jobs and not enough workers so that broadly means that just a bit of background on that who's hurting here um, this is an interesting question, isn't it? We're seeing a gap opening up between public and private sector wages. That gap has been quite big for quite a while. And some mortgage holders are feeling a lot of pain, people owning outright and not being hit by that. What do you think are the, are the long-term risks around that, that gap opening up? Yeah, I think this, this one's an interesting question because we, we, if you sort of think back to the start of the year or even a little bit before that, all of the pain was meant to come through energy prices and with energy prices you know the vast majority of households have to pay energy bills so the the pain is spread more broadly across the economy now we're finding that if we're going to if we're going to slow the economy and bring it back into balance so demand and supply in the economy are out of balance at the moment and that's what's pushing up on prices to get that balance back it's going to be more directed um, at mortgage holders as you as you rightly say there um, and I think actually it's it's a narrower base of individuals, and it it actually raises the question going back to the Bank of England about how much they might have to do to generate the weakness that is required to bring inflation down in the economy, um, because you know if you sort of take a broader look over to, over um, sort of bringing in the pandemic and things like that as well, you know it's quite possible that a lot of these individuals are still sitting on a pile of the savings that were accrued during the pandemic as well. So they're better placed to deal with this rise or potentially better placed to deal with this rise in interest rates. So I think that presents an interesting conundrum, but you're right that I think the base at which, um, over which this pain is being spread has narrowed and it's narrowed um, mm. from what we thought might be the case 
maybe six months ago and this energy price shock appears to have been a little bit less severe than than we had been expecting yeah and and i think that's you know where it is politically pertinent isn't it if everyone's being hit it's a different equation than if you know mortgage holders are being hit more than everybody else versus savers who are benefiting from you know high interest rates and so on so i think that's the kind of one of the political strands here. But then also we were speaking to Freya Beamish at TS Lombard, uh, their chief economist and head of macro research, Dan, um, so another economist. Also, though, on this kind of political point, she was talking quite pointedly about why the government doesn't want to talk about supply-side economics, things like government's investment in people, in education, in productivity. Have a listen to what she had to say. Um, I think the supply side problems are much more deep seated uh, and probably it's, it's no no kind of surprise that the, the current government doesn't really want to talk about them because they, they created a lot of them over the over the 2010s um, in terms of the, the austerity uh, packages that, that were kind of rolled out and, and persisted with much longer in the UK than, than, it, than other places. Uh, and that has left, I'll give you an example, the, the, the supply side in the UK um, and the, sort of the NHS and the healthcare sector are unable to, to, to deal with the uh, with the, the well actually the pandemic which could have been forecasted um, but but more generally to, to kind of to deal with the the, the state of health of the, of the British nation literally the health of, of, of people um, so the kind of the bottleneck in the UK economy there are many but one of them is that is that there are more than seven million people waiting on the sidelines for their um, to, to re-enter the labor market but also to to, to get their um, to, to get their hernias fixed um, if they're a builder and they can't they can't work um, mm. So that that whole part of the story is just completely missing, um, and I think that, that the government is right to be worried about a kind of an increase in in competition for funds between the government and the private sector. That's a global phenomenon that we see uh, as, as driving yields higher on a secular basis. This kind of shift from uh, the 2010s period where you had an excess of savings um, to uh, a period where you've got the need for greening, you've got the need for greater defence spend, mm. you've got um, potential for kind of re- re- deeper capital deepening, capital deepening, uh, reawakening in, in developed markets. And all of this pushes up interest rates. But I, I don't really see um, government the government deficit so much as, as in competition with the private sector, um, potentially as the as the um, as the, the authorities are sort of making out with with it, um, with these uh, speeches in, in at Mansion House. So Freya Beamish there from TS Lombard. So she's sort of picking out, Dan, you know, how the government is trying to explain the current situation versus what she thinks is perhaps the cause of that. How far do you think austerity is playing into the UK's malaise now? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot there, wasn't there? (laughs) Yes. I think I think uh, I think on the on the austerity point, you know, I do struggle a little bit with the idea that it's been the root cause of the UK's productivity problem. It it undoubtedly suppressed demand through the 2010s and it meant growth and the economy was weaker than it otherwise was. But I think there was a lot of the, the productivity problem the UK's faced. And now we've got, of course, we've got this participation problem as well, though, you know, in the latest data that that looks like it's actually beginning to unwind a bit, which is, is another good news story. But on the productivity side, I think there has been this enormous overhang there was an enormous overhang, I should say, from the financial crisis. And then we got, we had the shock of Brexit, which again is a supply side shock, um, and the pandemic as well, which is a supply side shock. So 
I think the, the point that the UK's supply side or supply capacity, so its ability to produce goods and services without basically prices rocketing off, um, is weaker than other countries. And I think it's a big part of why the inflation problem has been has been more acute here than than in other places. Um, whether you can blame the government's, government's austerity for that, I'm I'm a little bit less sure. Um, but I certainly think that the government needs to think a lot more seriously about the supply side because it is the it is the it's you know it's a big part of the solution here. Of course, the challenge and the in the sort of to be fair on the government is it takes these things take a long time to come through and a long time to show up in the data. So it, it's a difficult balancing act, but it is a big part of the solution. You can't. Because what you end up doing, I think, I think the best way to think about this is what you end up doing is with very weak supply capacity of the economy, you have to push down on demand to meet that supply. And that's what the Bank of England's trying to do. But that's an extremely painful way of going about dealing with the inflation mm. problem. Done. You know, there's another there's another way into this, which is through supply. Um, but that's the challenge the Bank of England's facing, particularly because it can't really do much about supply. It just has to hit demand, and that's why we're sort of, you know we were talking about mortgages and slowing the economy down. Yeah, on that, the UK Treasury Select Committee are grilling mortgage providers today. You've got Lloyd, Skipton, Nationwide, Paragon, all facing the grilling. Rates are at the level the Bank of England was worried about last year. How low would the next official inflation data have to come in to not mean that we get another half point hike from the Bank of England at its August meeting? I mean, that's the for those of us that sit and watch this thing day to day, Lizzie. That's the million dollar question. That's I why mean, I'm asking think, you, Dan. No, no, you ask. I know, no, you ask all the right questions. I know that, but it's the the point. I think for us, at least, sort of our interpretation of what the, how the Bank of England will react. And we're basing this just off what happened in June, because that's clearly sort of we've had an inflection point in their reaction function. They've suddenly turned, apparently turned a lot more hawkish. I think you'd have to see core inflation at the very minimum stabilize. So that core inflation is the bit of the CPI basket that strips out energy, food, alcohol and tobacco. And it's sort of a broad a very broad measure of underlying inflation and pressure in the economy and inflation that's related to what's going on in the UK specifically rather than external factors. So you want to see that at least stabilising because it's that it's there that the trend has been really worrying in the UK relative to say the euro area or the US where core inflation is, is slowly sort of coming down, um, but it's certainly not going up which is what is happening in the UK. The UK has turned a corner and is on its way back up, which is really what's worried the Bank of England, I think. So, mm. and there's sort of, there's a bit on services inflation as well. I think they want to see that stabilised. They focused on that a lot as well. But those two things, I think that's what you're going to want to see. I mean, the headline number will probably fall quite sharply because there's a fuel base effect in there. So we had a big rise in fuel prices last year. That will fall out of the annual comparison. But I think it will be the core core inflation number and the services inflation number. At a minimum, they have to stabilise. Probably they're going to need to fall a little bit for the Bank of England to be happy to go back to a sort of 25 basis point rate hike. Okay. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. That's Dan Hansen, uh, Senior UK Economist at Bloomberg Economics. Really interesting, those um, 
long-term sickness numbers. 400,000, we're still uh, above the number of people who were long-term sick before the pandemic. And although Mm -hmm. it has come down the latest data, it is still a lot higher than it was. Yeah, no, absolutely. And according to Bloomberg reporting, um, we're comfortably above now 9 million people throughout the UK on NHS waiting lists. Mm. Uh, So that, um, according to the consultancy Broadstone. So, yeah, although it's good news that the that, um, you know, people who have been long term sick are coming back to the to the workforce you know, for, for various reasons, it's still a major issue. I thought that analysis from Bloomberg Economics, um, from Dan and the team, mm. about the unemployment number was really interesting. They're saying, yes, there's a rise in unemployment, but that's more reflective of people coming back to the labour market and looking for work rather than people falling out of jobs. So it doesn't represent the kind of loosening that would be relief for the Bank of England. Mm. Mm. So partly so the unemployment was, was suppressed because people weren't joining the labour market. Mm. Yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into then the uh, picture around jobs. Um, How does it translate into people actually trying to find work? Manpower Group finds employment for more than 100,000 people in the UK every year. And their UK director, Chris Gray, joined us earlier on Bloomberg Radio with exactly what they are now seeing in the UK labour market. Have a listen. It is a mixed picture. And uh, we talk about pockets of opportunity. um, And and you have to look look hard to find them. But I think um, what it all boils down to, um, obviously what we've seen is unemployment increasing a little bit, un- inactivity going down a little bit, um, and, and and candidate availability in under other trackers increasing. Um, but place of placement information, um, not quite, well, certainly not increasing at the rate it was. So. I talk about or we talk about this difference or nuance between availability and placeability, which is all about the talent mismatch. So I think you're seeing much more availability coming into the market, as I mentioned about some of those other trackers. Um, But when it comes to actually placing people into work, whether or not they have the right skills as they pivot from job to job or industry to industry as they look for higher pay is the question that employers are are, are struggling with. so that's probably the headline mm. message, I think. So still a major skills mismatch. Um, in terms of your data then and, and what you see at Manpower Group, what's happening with wages from your data? How quickly are wages coming down? Because that really is the key factor for the Bank of England. I think I would characterise wages at the moment as kind of plateauing. Um, so they year on year they they are bouncing around in the high single digits you know between five to ten percent um and our anticipation is that they will start to drop as uh, as we go into the back end of the year as inflation drops as well so that is still the kind of starting wage or salary that we're seeing in terms of um banded increase if you will and how concerned should we be about the economic inactivity picture? Is the government doing enough on that front? Well, we've seen a big focus on, um, well, depending on how you want to split inactivity, of course, there are two, two predominantly two different ways of looking at inactivity, age cohort and reasons for being inactive cohort, if you will. And long-term sick represents the biggest proportion of the 9 million inactive, about 2.6 million of those 9 million are, are inactive. Uh, due to long-term sick reasons. So that's a big focus of, of um, for, for employers. And we've seen some initiatives in recent months trying to accommodate and, and support 
those inactive uh, workers back into work. But of course, from an age cohort perspective, uh, over 50s represent about 3.1 million of those 9 million and 16 to 24 year olds represent about 2.4 million of the 9 million. So again, we've seen an acceleration of campaigns and initiatives to target those cohorts as well. In terms of your outlook, finally, Chris, what do you expect over the next three months? Do you think that wage growth is going to uh, start to fall? Do you think that some of the um, inactive um, you know, members of society, as you mentioned, are going to return? Is anything the government is doing going to get those individuals back into work swiftly and, and you know, s- slow the, um, the, uh, the, the market, the, the labour market? Um, well, the government have obviously announced um, the, the initiatives to support the over 50s back in. Um, we've seen employers uh, ad- adopting some of the, the guidance from government. I think it's as ever a collective uh, effort by government, employment, business, uh, employers and business in, in, in the round. Um, so we continue to work on those initiatives. Um, I think from a wage perspective, um, that will inflate the, the wage inflation will start to drop is our anticipation as we go into the back end of the year. Um, and I think we'll see an increasing uh, increased weighting of of um, non-wage benefits continue. So flexibility being offered by employers, um, employers looking at different talent pools. Um, we're seeing also this augmentation of automation and AI to try and pick up some of the, the mm. workload that workers would ordinarily do. And, and I think we're also seeing a trend for cross-border cross recruitment as well. 55% of employers are willing to hire outside of our borders. So that was uh, Chris Gray there, the uh, Manpower Group UK director, speaking to us earlier on Bloomberg Radio, um, which again brings me to a little pivot around MPs, whether they are looking for jobs. Uh, Did you read, well, did you read the FT piece today reporting about this fatalistic mood in the Conservative Party? I mean, a lot of um, uh, political writers have been looking at this, but that... uh, one MP reportedly saying, who wants to hire useless one-term former MPs? As they say, there's <laughs> nothing more X than an ex-MP. Oh, well, look, I thought it was a bit yeah, a bit difficult that uh, at the Tory Garden Party, yeah, the mood is so glum. Honestly, I've heard that from uh, Tory <laughs> insiders myself, that actually it's time for, uh, for them to be in opposition. They need to regroup, refresh, rethink how they're going to go at this because they're tired of government and that's that's from Tories themselves. Well, is that really it, though, for the government? I mean, it does seem to be, certainly if you look at the Mansion House speech last night, so this is um, the kind of annual speech that is most focused on, certainly by financial services, that the government is really trying to refocus on economic growth, on bringing in reforms for the pension industry. So the Chancellor um, announced this agreement. Nine of Britain's largest pension funds are allocating 5% of assets in their default funds to unlisted stocks by 2030 so this could unlock apparently 50 billion pounds if the rest of the industry follows suit so this would be money to invest in growth businesses 
you know, businesses that have got lots of potential in the UK that therefore could grow, could add to wages, to employment, to all of our living standards in a cost of living crisis. Yeah, this is one of the Chancellor's uh, big ideas. This has been uh, rumbling around for a little while. Interesting how they're selling it, I thought, actually. They said that the, the benefits to pension savers could be about £1,000 a year once they've retired. So, of course, I think the Chancellor sides by looking at uh, ways to boost investment in UK companies, which obviously he wants to do as well. But now they're trying to uh, flag up the benefits to retirees, albeit uh, some years in the future. Well, Nicholas Lyons, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, spoke to us about this. Caroline and Lizzie spoke to him earlier on Bloomberg Radio. This is a great example of how uh, UK um, long-term savings firms have come together to do something that's right for customers and for uh, the UK economy. Um, First and foremost, this is about pensioners. It's about trying to enhance the the value of uh, pension pots and putting them into asset classes that are going to give them the best possible returns. But I think it's important to recognize that this is, the, if you like, the what. It's not the how. The what mm-hmm. is we want to allocate more money from people's pension savings into the growth economy, into unlisted equities. The how is where my future growth fund comes in. But I suppose it comes back to the question that we've been asking for weeks. If this was where more money would be made, more return on investment, why wouldn't they have done it already? Because they haven't had the capability in frag- in a fragmented pension system to do so. And that's why it's really important. So the, the likes of Aviva and LNG and M&G have very big asset management firms, and they have the capability to do unlisted equity investment, and they do. So making this commitment for them is not such a big deal. But for the other, um, you know, this is 65% mm. of the industry signing up to this compact. And that's just the nine largest players. We expect you know, others to, to join now. Um, uh, but this is, uh, we need to give a, a vehicle through which other pension funds can, can easily make these investments. Yeah. And it's important to do this in a large scale because we absolutely must uh, diversify risk as, as intelligently as we can so that we know this is a a higher risk asset class, but if it's done intelligently, we can limit uh, risk through diversification, enhance returns, and also compress costs. Okay. I mean, maybe a large number of firms, but uh, the overall pensions industry in the UK controls two and a half trillion pounds worth of assets. So this is 50 billion pounds in comparison. so, you know, it's, it's certainly only a very small part of exactly. the industry. Um, is it simply going to incentivise consolidation in the pensions industry? Is that actually what the, the driving force is going to end up being? I don't think so. I think that needs to happen anyway. Mm. Uh, we're, we've got 27,000 different pension pots in the DC pension system. That, we need consolidation. That'll happen anyway. But what this does is it accelerates the opportunity. It, this is a sort of way of, if you like, pooling assets rather than consolidating pensions. Uh, so this this gives us a leap ahead to try and do this. We're not trying to do this overnight, though. The the undertaking here is to get to, you know, 50 billion by 2030. Mm. 50 billion is the number that comes from the fact that DC pensions at the moment have about 550 billion in them. That's growing by 10% a year with new contributions. The the power of compounding, Warren Buffett's favourite thing, means that by 2030, 550 becomes a trillion. Five percent of a trillion is fifty billion. And the Chancellor was at pains to emphasise that this is not mandatory. Yep. But why shouldn't it be if it's so good in exchange for the tax relief that pension providers enjoy? 
look, I think there are lots of different ways to look at this, but you know, pension trustees have fiduciary responsibilities. We want them to take those responsibilities seriously. You can't at one stage say, take your responsibility seriously and invest intelligently in all of these asset classes if we give you the opportunity to do so, and if we release the cap, the cap on costs, which has been another feature of uh, driving them towards passive funds, and then at the same time say, and actually we're taking the power of authority away from you. So look, I think it's, this is a much more British way to do things. Uh, it's a voluntary pact. You say to people, we expect you to do this. You have an opt-out. You need to tell us why you're opting out, because we think this is a good thing to do. And frankly, if the nine largest players, speaking for two-thirds of the pension pot, say this is something that we think is in the interests of customers, I think everybody will say the same. What sort of businesses will qualify? How will UK startups be defined when it comes to unlisted assets? I mean, I think we need to, we need to look at the... Um, you know, when, when, when we start putting together the Future Growth Fund, these are things that we will look at very carefully. But this is not going to be exclusively UK. Again, this has got to be driven by delivering the best returns for pension savers. We, the good thing is that we know that we've got massive foreign direct investment into this sector from the most sophisticated investors in the world. So these are companies that people really want to invest in. So Nicholas Lyons there, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, speaking to us. Of course, he's also chairman of a pensions organisation normally himself, Phoenix Group. He's on a sabbatical from that to be the Lord Mayor. So he described this pact, you know, as a much more British way to do things. I mean, look, it's voluntary, doesn't necessarily mean investment in just British startups, does involve risk, it took, could take ages. But on the other hand, it is at least pointing financial services in the right direction in the UK. Yes, it's interesting. It is a voluntary agreement. And as you say, they're not committed to putting this money into UK startups. The European ones, of course, be involved or indeed uh, elsewhere in the world. I guess the chance will be hoping that they stick to their world, stick to their word, and there'll be a bit of naming and shaming if they don't. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock, and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepgett. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.